Welcome to the 391st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. Welcome if you're new to the show. It's getting hot and humid in Florida. Um, I guess I'm going to say that every day until December from now on, but we're finally getting some rain, so things are starting to green up, so that is much, much welcomed. Tower Garden is still producing a lot of tomatoes, as is a a plant that I have in the gravel that just sprung up on its own. I have broccoli that I picked this week. We've got some collards. A little bit of basil still growing. Actually, basil's doing doing quite well, and a little celery's doing, doing well. I had a daikon radish that I grew from microgreen seeds that I threw out, and I harvested it, and it flowered and there were abundant seed pods. I threw it back in the ground. Now I have a bunch of daikon radish microgreens coming up in my various beds. So it's all cool. It's coming around. Papayas are a little slow. Mangoes are coming on probably two weeks maybe before we have some good mangoes. A couple have fallen off the tree prematurely and some have ripened and been very tempting. Uh, I got another round of bananas from my friend Matthew Reese over at What's Ripening and um, delicious. If you haven't had some tropical bananas, you're missing out. So if you can get a hold of some of those, it'd be great. Also, um, I've had some soursop. If you haven't had that tropical fruit, um, I bought that at the local um, Colombian grocery store. So that's pretty cool. Of course, we've got some watermelon. Um, we had a honeydew this weekend. Berries are, are coming in. So um, abundance of fruit, and that's what I like to do for breakfast, a little chia seed, fruit, maybe uh, a little bit of yogurt, maybe just uh, a piece of my homemade sourdough bread. We were in Houston this past weekend to celebrate my grandson's second birthday, and he had a trash truck theme, and uh, Addie Delaney Minerich, our registered dietitian, did a birthday brunch-type celebration, so we had plant-based pancakes that Nathan, her husband, made, and Addie made, I'm sorry, Nathan made waffles. Addie made the pancakes in a tofu scramble, and we had um, uh, sautéed mushrooms and peppers and had a bit of a fajita bar if you wanted it, and I attempted to make a trash truck out of a watermelon, kind of looked like the Kool-Aid man a little bit, but I had a watermelon and some pineapple, uh, had limes for the, the, the wheels, so it was pretty cool. So we have celebrated the diva's birthday, her 89th birthday, and Addie Delaney Minerich's 30th birthday, Caleb's second birthday, and uh, upcoming this weekend will be Nathan Minerich's birthday. So then we'll have a little bit of a break until until yours truly turns the big 6-0 in August. So maybe I'll slip under the radar with that one. But maybe we'll have to do some sort of big 6-0 workout. Who knows? I do want to attempt 100K, which will be 62 miles sometime uh, before 2023. So we'll see, or maybe before the year's up, before 61 comes along. How about that? We'll put that as soon. Next up though, we have the Leadville Marathon and that'll be at elevation. So we'll see how that goes. And then it's back to the swimming pools to, uh, get in shape for a swim run in the fall, another, uh, fall marathon and, uh, some winter ultras. So I always like to have something on the calendar. Keeps me training. Um, Keeps me honest. We just finished a kettlebell workout uh, with the practice. Uh, that was something different every day during the week. So that was good to keep me uh, going to the weight room. 
the fear of elevation has kept me getting on the treadmill and cranking the grade up for the half mile or so. Um, so who knows? We'll, we'll see what uh, we need to do to make things better the next time, perhaps, uh, or the next elevation we have. I do, um, I, I have been really good at doing my mobility exercises. I think that is key, especially when you're approaching um, um, higher numbers. But I, I think mobility is important for everyone to keep every joint moving as, as best we can. Uh, I heard a quote today by a man named um, Lance Mann. He said that motion is lotion. And I think that is a really good quote, motion is lotion. So you gotta keep moving to keep, uh, to keep mobile. But what happens if you're the perfect plant-based eater and um, exerciser and you get sick anyway? And I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of guilt that comes from things not going perfect or not being fully bulletproof, per se, if you're plant-based. I think a lot of us forget that we weren't plant-based all of our lives, most of us. Um, so that there was uh, years and years of metabolic waste and toxin exposure. The more birthdays you add up, uh, the more toxic expo toxin exposure that you have over the years, and things go awry. And we don't even know all the toxins that we're exposed to half of the time. And, you know, we're all in uh, nutrition evolution for the most part. We do the best that we can. But sometimes bad things happen to good people. Uh, when it comes to uh, metabolic-related diseases, such as heart disease or cancer, um, even autoimmune diseases, and it can be it can be disappointing, um, can be a little embarrassing that we didn't measure up. You know, there are um, there's a feeling out there sometimes that people are ready to point the finger. See, I told you that didn't work. All right, I told you you gave up all those things uh, for nothing. Um, you know, it may cross your mind, what am I going to get? I might as well just do what I want because it doesn't matter anyway. Um, those are all um, valid excuses and ways to look at things. But I, I think I have a little bit of a different perspective that I, that I kind of like to share, share with you. But, you know, again, regardless of, of uh, you know, our nutrition, bad things do happen to good people. And it may not be necessarily nutrition-related, um, but maybe it is. Maybe, you know, we started this journey and we're doing the best we can. And, you know, what do we do now? Being plant-based uh, does not by any chance uh, make us immortal. So we're all going to go at some point. The idea is that we have a better health span than if we didn't eat um, very nutritious. But I see people, you know, and things all the time talking about longevity, um, different hacks that people can do. And, um, you know, I, I think it comes down to, um, again, what is your ultimate health span? And you can do what you can do. And then the chips fall like they may. And I think the best thing that we can do is to live every day to the best of our ability. One of the things I hear in the office quite often is, uh, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. Um, and it's usually in the context, I'll ask the question, so what did you have for dinner last night? And people will say they can't remember what they had for dinner. Or something may have went awry, their weight may be up, or their volume status, they may be retaining water, and I'll ask, uh, and, and all of a sudden people um, have meal amnesia. And it's always kind of funny, and, and certainly people, you know, we do forget, um, everybody forgets what they ate, some of the things that they ate. Um, that's why dietary histories are so bad. But 
the thing that's ironic is that a lot of times we are holding on to these comfort foods or these foods that we think we really, really like. And when you get down to it, they're not so impressive. And, and certainly they're not impressive enough to remember them. Um, you know, I get things like, you know, I really like chicken. And then how do you make it? Well, it's always, you know, plain chicken with nothing on it or salt on it. And it's hard for me to believe that that's a game changer for health. Um, it's hard for me to believe that a hamburger is a game changer um, that you wouldn't want to give up for per, per, um, perhaps better health. So it, it becomes more of something different that is a little bit more uncomfortable to change rather than the things that we think we like that are, are so so great and we're so attached to them. Because again, most people can't even remember after they have that great meal what it actually was or what was actually in it. So I want to talk a little bit about what happens if you do get the diagnosis of cancer and how that is approached nutritionally. Um, and, and you could apply it to cardiovascular disease as well, but the cancer uh, diagnosis is a little bit more difficult to deal with and that your appetite seems to be and often is much more affected. If you have a heart attack, um, you may feel bad for a couple days, but you know ultimately if somebody was in the hospital or they got a stent or they had a bypass, and um, it doesn't take long for your appetite to come back and there might not be a big shift in, in weight um, unless there have been some major complications. But when people get a cancer diagnosis, then the fear is in uh, losing a tremendous amount of weight and not, you know, not being able to uh, maintain stamina and be able to get around. And I think from a physician's standpoint and an oncologist's standpoint, um, when they see their patients losing a lot of weight, then that's a fear that maybe things aren't going well and people are starting to deteriorate because their appetite's bad and they're losing weight and they can't get weight on people. Uh, and certainly if that gets out of hand, it can be an issue. But often we don't look about where we start from. We know that being overweight increases one's risk for cancer, uh, mainly because of all the inflammatory com uh, compounds uh, and hormones that fat actually generates, fat cells actually can generate. Um, people that are overweight tend to be diabetic or can be diabetic, and that also increases one's risk of cancer. So being overweight doesn't help you out, and especially being overweight when a significant part of that is fat mass and not muscle mass, which most of the time it is. You know, as we age, we tend to put on more fat mass, lose muscle mass, and lose some bone mass. And um, that's the other shocker that, that comes about. Even when people are healthy and they become plant-based and they lose weight, all of a sudden, you know, they see skin hanging um, and they, you know, may lost some weight in their face. And, uh, you know, again, they may look at their arms and say, geez, you know, I don't have any muscle mass. I must have lost a lot of muscle mass. This, this can't be good. But the reality of it is the muscle was gone a long time ago. It was just replaced with fat. And when the fat goes away, then, then you kind of know how much muscle mass you've lost over the years without noticing it. So if somebody has cancer and loses weight, then all of a sudden that muscle mass deterioration that they've had over the years becomes much more apparent much quicker. And it says, it, you know, it can be fearful for a lot of people. But first and foremost, normalizing a body mass index is not a bad thing for any diagnosis. So, you know, a normal body mass, 18 and a half, 
to 24.8 is what's considered a normal body mass index, so height for weight, um, you know, about how much fat mass people should have. On the upper limits of normal, that 24.8 round, uh, 24.8 number, a lot of times there's still excess of fat mass um, because, again, we tend to lose muscle mass as we age. So a younger person may have a 24.8 BMI and still have a lot of muscle mass associated with it, but an older person that has not exercised may have a fair amount of fat still. So that 24.8 is still not something to worry about. But again, when someone sees someone that's lost weight, they automatically think, oh no, their health is deteriorating and bad things are starting to happen. But again, not necessarily true. When we look at cachexia, and that is the medical terminology of wasting, so losing significant muscle mass, that is associated with... um, uh, you know, a poor prognosis in a, in a cancer patient. And when the, w- the muscle mass is stable and people have a normal body composition, it is well known that people tend to do much better. Um, they tend to um, still have a, a better metabolism. And just like in a normal individual, if um, you're completely healthy and you sit in a chair and we feed you protein drinks all day long or, you know, whatever kind of protein you want, uh, but massive amounts of it, you're not going to have big muscles. You have to move and you have to use your muscles in order to build muscle. Same thing with someone that has cancer. If we just plop in empty calories, Twinkies, anything people eat, candy, like they have, they might have a candy dish at the oncologist or the dentist office and you just eat candy because you don't want to lose weight, then it's not necessarily a sign of health that your weight is maintained because it's more of a fat mass and that fat mass is ultimately metabolically going to work against you. So that's really not the way we want to go about it. So the question comes, Um, you know, what does one eat uh, if one has the diagnosis of cancer? Now, certainly if you have a loved one that has a diagnosis of cancer, you'd like them to be plant-based in order, uh, and and we'll talk more about the, you know, the benefits of of eating plant-based and all the antioxidants and phytonutrients and uh, things that you can eat that decrease blood flow to tumor cells and um, improve your immune function. Those are all, that's all well and good. But if somebody was a junk food junkie, uh, or a steak and, um, chicken wing type person, and then they get sick, it's going to be a hard, hard road to change somebody, um, really abruptly. Uh, and you got to keep that in mind. So from a, you know, from a preventative standpoint, um, when bad things happen to good people, it's better off to be plant-based and then get sick, and you're already plant-based, and you can tolerate um, and, and improve your diet even more. But, you know, trying to change somebody that wasn't plant-based is, is a little difficult just because of taste preference. You know, um, when people, especially if people are undergoing therapies, uh, the first things that get harmed with a lot of the therapies are um, cells that you know are associated with digestion. So people are nauseated, even taste buds, um, and, and and you know different things, hot and cold tolerance. 
so it's it's real hard to get somebody to change drastically. Um, to me, that's where the aim should be more at adding good things in best you can. Um, certainly not, you know, I, I never be one to give up and just say, okay, eat Twinkies to keep calories on, but, you know, can you do fruit juices? Can you do, you know, carrot juice with fruit in it? Can, you know, that's where juicing would come in to get some more nutrients into people um, and, and do some gradual changes and accelerate or accentuate the, the foods and the vegetables that they actually eat. When they looked at um, how to feed somebody that, you know, maybe their appetite is really poor, it's always been better if you can still digest your food as opposed to getting intravenous-type feedings. Um, intravenous feedings are associated with um, a lot of metabolic disturbances, um, increased risk of infection um, from the, the site itself, and, and so it, it, and absorption is never, never as good. It never translates into... Um, uh, the phytonutrients and antioxidants you just can't get in. So it's never as good as eating food. Uh, unfortunately, most physicians are trained in prescribing um, what we call TPN or um, parental, parenteral nutrition versus um, you know figuring out what kind of nutrients somebody could actually chew to do better. Uh, and, that's un and that's unfortunate. So most Physicians recommend eat what you can, uh, eat what you tolerate. But, you know, we know that, again, being able to chew and take things in with all the antioxidants associated with the whole food is, is much better. Blending would be a secondary way. Juicing would be the next way. The other thing that's been shown is omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, when we look at um, essential fatty acids, Omega-3s and omega-6s our body can't make, but omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, anti-clotting, and those have been associated with not only those, um, those chemical properties, but they've also uh, metabolically been shown omega-3s to actually help with the utilization of insulin, the, the, preserve, uh, the help to preserve muscle mass uh, and absorb other nutrients. So it's really important for someone that has a diagnosis of uh, uh, cancer, and I'll say any lifestyle disease, to get uh, a little bit more in the omega-3 category. Omega-6s, the other essential fatty acids, go to clotting and inflammation. So they're readily abundant. Um, they're a byproduct of any seed or not, not necessarily in our, in our favor for the most part. So omega-3s you want. Again, omega-3s would be things like ground flaxseed, chia seeds, hemp seeds, beans, um, kale, greens. Um, so those are things to, to really, um, you know, to, to make sure that, that, that you're getting in. I'm a huge proponent of microgreens because every little seed contains all the nutrients, nutrients it takes to grow that plant. So one little seed can grow a microgreen that is rich in antioxidants and, and minerals uh, and everything it was needed to grow that plant. So that little Dacon radish microgreen is, uh, has all the nutrients of the, its big, um, big brother, the, the radish, uh, when it finally grows. So uh, go ahead and uh, get all the microgreens you can. They're easy to grow. Grow them in a window seal, but uh, whatever variety um, that you can get a hold of, it's best to grow. Again, it's, we're coming into summertime. You can even throw the microgreen seed in a raised bed or a little box, and, and they can really take off. A lot of people ask, you know, are there randomized 
placebo-controlled trials looking at cancer patients that are vegetarian, vegan, plant-based versus standard American diet, and does it really make a difference? And if this is it, this uh, the time of my life where I run to really want to um, give up things. And to me, the first answer is you're never giving up. Um, you're you're enhancing um, your well-being by taking in uh, these plant-based products, uh, plant-based foods, microgreens, um, colorful fruits and vegetables, that won't make you worse. So it's not, we're not going to do any harm. The problem with all the studies is all the people get lumped together. So vegans, uh, junk food vegans, vegetarians that eat eggs, pescatarians, um, dietary history, people that maybe even aren't vegan or vegetarian get lumped in with people that are really good plant-based eaters. So it's really hard to show that there's a tremendous survival benefit with um, eating plant-based uh, in, in a lot of the meta-analysis. Certainly, isolated studies have shown much uh, marked benefits from specific foods like mushrooms and curcumin and turmeric, um, all of the greens, but, you know, uh, carrots and cruciferous vegetables. The other interesting thing when you look at studies of cancer patients and nutrition is that all the studies look at overall survival with nutrition. And it's very difficult to tease out because, again, you can't randomize people into eating good and eating bad and they're lumped together. But the other thing that's really funny to me is that when you look at chemotherapy drugs and all these thousands of dollars of drugs that have all these toxicities, they never look at overall survival. Very rarely do they look at overall survival. They look at tumor progression or regression or, or tumor regression or disease-free survival. So it's kind of unfair with uh, from a nutrition aspect that the bar's set so high that you know in order for this you know for an order for you to give up. Um, cheese and eat broccoli, that there has to be a survival benefit uh, before it could be recommended. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's, that's fair at all, especially when you look at a lot of chemotherapy drugs and they're looking at, um, you know, at best if the overall survival is a few months more or at best if it's a disease-free survival and there's no look at survival. So um, I think, you know, again, when you're looking at some of the studies, you have to really look at the context that, that these things are taken in. Um, you know, when I look at a lot of chemotherapy drugs and you look at the benefits of if kale and normalizing body mass index and exercising, well, it's like a hands down that, you know, those things have been shown to do so much better uh, than, you know, the 2 or 3% absolute benefit that some of the drugs that are getting. Now, that doesn't mean I'm telling people what to choose. That's That's what... Um, that's something that you need to go over with your physician and your healthcare team. But, you know, even traditional therapies are enhanced by good nutrition, not poor nutrition. Your risk of infection is much less with good nutrition and building your immune system than poor nutrition. The American Institute of Cancer Research has um, stated that plant-based nutrition is associated with a decrease in cancer risk. Red meat, um, which includes beef, pork, and lamb, processed meat, charred meat, smoked meats, increased risk of cancer. Um, American Institute of Cancer Research clearly states those things, um, and they're pretty good references to, to look at that. 
So to think that those foods are going to help you if you already have cancer to avoid things from getting worse would be foolish. But again, um, we become more focused on the scale number than we do the nutrition. Just a few things that are fairly um, accepted uh, out in the nutrition and cancer world is that nitrites, which are very different than nitric oxide, but nitrites, which are used as a preservative typically in um, all luncheon meats, including the beloved turkey breast, but certainly, you know, when it comes to mind to salamis and bacons and such, such are associated with increased cancer risk, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, most people don't realize that chicken consumption is also associated with increased risk of pancreatic cancer. Bacon is associated with increased risk of pancreatic cancer. On the other and, and, and some of that is because um, poultry may have viruses associated or be contaminated with viruses that increase um, uh, the risk of liver and pancreatic cancer. So, um, you know, anybody that's watched, there was, you know, several, a lot of years back, they, they showed chicken farms and how chickens are processed. It's a pretty dirty environment. Uh, chicken factory, chick, factory raised chickens are in a pretty filthy environment uh, and the risk of viruses um, are abundant and it can be lethal not only to an, from an infectious standpoint um, for people but also from a cancer causing point of view. And you know, just to drive it home, if you're undergoing therapies and your immune system is compromised, then dragging a chicken that can be con contaminated with salmonella and other uh, harmful bacteria um, or even beef products or any meat products, um, that splash is not like you can see it. And it's very hard to get that cleaned up and it contaminates your kitchen uh, and make a risk of infection for somebody that's getting uh, any kind of chemotherapy or immunosuppressant drugs available. So, you know, that was the game changer in our household when my mother got lymphoma is that I didn't want to bring up any animal product uh, into the household, into her kitchen that might increase her risk of an infection. Uh, and not to say that you can't get uh, infection from, you know, vegetables, but the contamination is much, much higher in animal products uh, and, and uh, you know, much greater for the most part. On the other hand, phytates, and people argue over phytates all the time, uh, but they're found uh, in beans, grains, nuts, and seeds, uh, and actually decrease cancer cell growth, and particularly pancreatic cell growth. Uh, coffee consumption is associated with a decrease in pancreatic cancer uh, cell growth. Curcumin um, has been, and turmeric have a lot of colorectal and pancreatic cancer benefits. So those are easy things to particularly add to the diet. Um, if you're going to drink coffee with dairy creamer and a bunch of sugar, that's probably not the answer. Uh, but again, you know, there are places where coffee enemas are used as part of therapy and have been very successful as well. All animals store metabolic waste and toxins in their fat. So when you eat the fat of an animal, um, or, uh, and which is associated with all the animals, even if you try to trim it off the outside, you're exposed to the fat and all the toxins that the animal's ever been exposed to. So most of us don't know where our animals are raised that we eat or that we used to eat. So the toxin exposure uh, can be quite significant without you even knowing it. And both animal uh, fat and animal protein have been associated with increased risk of cancers.
deep fried foods, even deep fried vegetables and things like potato chips uh, generate acrylamides, which are carcinogens and can increase the risk of cancer and uh, certainly can accelerate uh, recurrence. But again, back to this uh, dietary phytates uh, that are found in, in these very simple foods, these very simple plant foods, also decrease the risk of kidney, kidney stones, diabetes, even cavities, um, diabetes. Uh, decrease, it's been shown to decrease uh, leukemic cell um, proliferation, uh, decrease colon cancer, estrogen receptor, uh, progestin receptor positive uh, breast cancers are associated or decreased with phytic acid, cervical cancer, prostate cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, and sarcomas. The interesting thing about these phytates, which are thought to be somewhat of a toxin uh, because they protect the plant from, um, you know, from potential um, toxicities, pretty much leave normal cells alone. So they are very specific to uh, attacking cancer cells. The meat industry actually adds phytates or phytic, uh, a, a phytic acid to meat to decrease oxidation. And that word oxidation, um, you can link it to rust, but things that oxidize, there are byproducts that are toxic um, and, again, accelerate this metabolic waste accumulation. Um, so, you know, everybody, even the meat industry, understands that uh, phytic acid can be or phytates can be uh, beneficial. They've even shown to take cancer cells, add phytic acid, and some of the cancer cells actually start to behave more normally. So most people are worried when they hear phytate, they, they start thinking beans, because I think people don't like beans in general. People that are eat standard American diet think that beans are just, you know, the worst thing that could happen to them, take away your hamburger and give you beans. But again, these phytates occur in grains and um, in whole grains uh, as well, you know, rice, in the brand of, of, of grains, you know, wheat. Yet people are scared to death of pasta and bread. So, you know, it comes back to whole grain pastas and, and bread can be um, very beneficial as far as when it comes to cancer. Uh, it's also a good source of protein, a good source of calories, can help maintain uh, a weight, help maintain energy. Um, so turning your back on, on bread and beans and different grains when you have cancer is probably completely unfounded. You know, on the other hand, we just said that chicken and beef and uh, uh, processed meats are associated with cancer, yet that's the first thing that people push because, again, it's protein, protein, protein. Um, and that's really not um, what, we're, what we're looking for. So... It does become a little bit difficult when people's appetite are, is decreased and we're trying to get calories in people that can't eat large volumes. But what we eat is, is still very, very important. And again, if it caused a problem to cause cancer or to us be associated with cancer, certainly when you have cancer, you're trying to get over it. It's not really the way to go. If we go back to those microgreens, phytic acid is actually used as a source of phosphorus for the seeds. So again, those little seeds have everything they need to grow. Um, and, you know, phytic acid is part of that. The problem is that a lot of people state that uh, increased phytate ingestion is associated with a decreased absorption of zinc, iron, and calcium by the body. Um, and that has been... Um, 
kind of documented on both sides of the yeah, of the board. So certainly if you uh, give people a bunch of bran and then you look at their zinc, calcium, and iron absorption, uh, it might go down a little bit. But we're not suggesting that people eat a diet only of um, phytic acid or a diet of only bran uh, or grains. So again, a whole foods plant-based diet is that of a very well-balanced plate, vegetables, fruit, um, whole grains and beans, not just, you know, um, whole grains and, and all beans. So we want the color in there as well. We want the fiber. Um, and that absorption uh, varies, um, you know, depending on how you eat your food and what meals have what. I think what's hard to imagine in people that aren't plant-based is if we just get a little bit, just use, let's use zinc for instance, there may not be a lot of zinc in a lot of plant-based foods, but there's a little bit. And when you eat a wide variety of plant-based foods, then you end up getting those micronutrients in the amounts that you actually need. Um, so there's not a problem with malabsorption. I mean, again, you can go back to the blue zones uh, where people eat a lot of breads and grains and pastas and beans, and, and they did just fine uh, because they had a diet with a wide variety of, of fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, you can also look at the gut microbiome. The more diverse you eat, uh, the better your gut microbiome is, uh, which also improves your immunity. So... Um, plant-based eaters tend to eat a whole variety of food instead of two or three things. So we kind of trickle in these micronutrients and vitamins and minerals from a variety of sources as opposed to one large source such as an egg or a piece of liver. Soaking beans, fermenting beans, sprouting beans decreases the phytic acid or the phytates uh, in them. Uh, fermentation such as the production of sourdough bread and the fermentation actually decreases the availability of phytic acid, increases the zinc absorption. So it kind of all works out um, like it should when we prepare our foods. If I just gave a little dietary history of what I ate yesterday, um, breakfast, soursop, um, papaya, pineapple, blueberries, blackberries, banana, chia seeds, sourdough bread, a little bit of almond milk, yogurt, lunch spinach, white rice, tomato, pepper, cucumber, evening zucchini, pearl rice noodles, tomato, mushrooms, beans, bananas, black cherries, cacao powder. I mean, there's a wide variety of foods, wide variety of color versus um, if I were to say in a standard American diet, I had Cheerios with milk and, um, you know, uh, half a cup of blueberries and orange juice. Uh, and grilled chicken uh, sandwich for lunch with a slice of tomato and pasta with a meat sauce and a lettuce salad. So you can see the difference uh, between those two meals. And I didn't have that second meal. That's uh, if somebody ate a standard American diet for the record. But uh, you can see the difference in nutrients, antioxidant, antioxidants, um, and potential benefits in what I ate versus the standard American diet. So if we're going to help ourselves, um, uh, you know, we have to kind of look at some of these nutrients. I had someone tell me this week that um, they thought kale, onions, um, 
beets, beans were medicine, and bread, cheese, and meat were food. And they didn't really like medicine so much. Um, and, you know, I think let food be thy medicine, that they do have a point that, you know, there's so many nutrients in kale, onions, beans, tomatoes, um, that they are medicines, um, but they are tr truly food, and they should taste well, and they can taste well if we put them together correctly. And that becomes a challenge. So if you're not feeling well, it's really hard to have enough energy to do some of these things. Um, and so that's when, you know, it's time to make it simple. Um, I always tell people that one of our most simple meals are greens, typically Swiss chard, beans, a sweet potato, and a salad. You know, it doesn't get much more simple than that. Fruit, you know, you can buy already chopped up or prepared. Um, doesn't take much. Chia seeds, flax seeds. Um, and, you know, and even, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, simple, simple lunches, uh, you know, just, you know, broccoli, uh, mushrooms, rice, you know, things can be very, very simple. They don't have to be these big fancy recipes. I think we put so much nutritional pressure on ourselves to create something that either appears like it did before a standard American diet or is over and above. So we have to impress people um, that it's so much more beautiful uh, than regular standard American food. And I, I don't think we're going to impress anybody because if you can look at a chicken sandwich or a cheese pizza and you think that looks beautiful, then chances are kale is not going to look, you know, some sort of kale or broccoli casserole is not going to look that, that appealing to those people anyway. But, um, you know, it, it comes back to uh, keeping things simple uh, doing what you can, doing the best that you can, you know, even just adding, like I said, adding the microgreens in, adding some uh, fruits, adding some, some whole grain breads in. Um, if you can get somebody to make you sourdough bread, all the better. But, but try to keep it simple, especially when you're starting out. And, you know, by no means, um, you know, like I said, most of us weren't born plant-based. Uh, congratulations uh, to those that were. But even people that have been raised completely plant-based cannot go through this world uh, without toxin exposure. And, you know, so sometimes bad things happen to good people, and we have to deal with them the best that we can. And, um, you know, it's, it's just not that easy being plant-based. You know, if it was, then everybody would be plant-based. And people are waiting for you to fail, perhaps, but you're not a failure. Um, I think you're, you're not a failure at all. I think that anything you do to eat more healthy, you're helping yourself and you're taking an active role in your health um, and should be applauded for it and supported for it. And um, somebody should help you cut up your, your fruit and veg if, if need be, rather than to bring you McDonald's to uh, just try to fatten you up. I will make a plug for our cookbook because our, our cookbook uh, recipes are, are simple uh, and plant-based and don't have a lot of ingredients in them. Um, you can also sign up for our newsletter where we put a recipe out every month. You can go over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com to, to sign up for that newsletter. Um, if you would like some nutritional help, uh, we certainly have a full-time plant-based registered dietitian, Addie Delaney um, Meinrich, uh, that's available to help um, you know, people get their plates 
as strong as they possibly can. Uh, she talks about moving your plate to accentuate the nutrients that will benefit you at all stages of your life. Um, certainly, it uh, changes a little bit from time to time, uh, depending on your body mass, your goals. So we'd love to help you. You can uh, email us at drdelaney.com, jamie at drdelaney.com, J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com, uh, or info at drdelaney.com to find out more about our practice. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, share it with other people. I'd like to get the word around. And uh, as always, thank you for listening. And um, it's never too late to participate in your own health and make things just a little bit better for you and those around you. Have a good evening.